was saying this for all of us, for all generations. He was highlighting the truth that hardship, that crisis situations, that bad circumstances can always be an opportunity for God to show forth His power, for God to be glorified. And so this experience that Lazarus is going through will actually, even though it's a bad thing, will actually result in much good. Lazarus, come forth. In our 25th episode, Jesus demonstrates his power over life and death, raising Lazarus from the grave, as we continue with life's meaning and purpose, an in-depth study of the Gospel of John. Hello and welcome to the Transforming Lives Together podcast. With so much that can and does go wrong in our world, it can be hard to see the silver lining. Bad news seems to dominate the airwaves, and even in moments of peace, it feels more like the calm before the storm. It's in these times that we need to be reminded of Paul's words in his letter to the Romans, where he writes, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. No matter what we face in this life, God's love is with us in Christ. This is the very same love and the very same God who, in our lesson for this week, raises Lazarus from the dead. If we believe Jesus is who he says he is, even if there is nothing else to hope for in this world, we have hope in Christ, and he is all we really need. Before we turn it over to Father Board, we would like to say thank you for your time as you tune in each week. We pray you are blessed and encouraged by the content of this podcast. Please listen through to the end to learn how you can connect with this podcast and with all that is happening at St. Bartholomew's Anglican Church. And now, with this week's lesson in the Gospel of John, here is Father Ward. Let's pray. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for uh, just the privilege it is to be alive. We thank for the gift of life, but more importantly, we thank you for the gift of salvation, the gift of eternal life, which is wrapped up in your son, Jesus. We thank you that he is the heart of uh, all that is uh, pure and good and meaningful, and that this study of John's gospel really uh, brings this to bear. We pray that you, your Holy Spirit would uh, guide our our study, our discussion, and help us to really see all the nuggets of wisdom and truth uh, that are being conveyed through your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you were here with us uh, last week, you know, or last week, two weeks ago, you know that uh, we looked at uh, chapter chapter 10, uh, The Good Shepherd, Jesus is the Good Shepherd, and we talked about the significance of what that means. Tonight, we're going to look at an equally wonderful uh, chapter, and that is chapter 11. And that is the account of the raising of Lazarus from the grave. Last time, we saw how the Good Shepherd, the imagery and the reality of Jesus as the Good Shepherd was set forth by Jesus' statement, I am the Good Shepherd. 
And that was the fourth I am of five, uh, seven I am statements in John's Gospel. Well, tonight we will see the fifth I am statement. I am resurrection and I am life. So, just as a review though, if you haven't been with us, remember the reason why John's Gospel was written, the same real reason the other three Gospels were written, was so that uh, we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing or trusting, you may have life in His name. That the heart of life, both here in the here and now, and eternally is wrapped up again, like I prayed, in Jesus, the Son of God. So His whole mission and ministry was to bring God down to us, to show us the way tangibly to demonstrate the great love and compassion that God has for us, as well as to deal with the sin and all that's evil in our world. So Jesus' ministry is a twofold ministry. It's to demonstrate God's love but it's and compassion, but it's also to demonstrate His justice. Someone had to pay the terrible price for human sin. Jesus does that. Now, the setting of John's Gospel is mainly in Jerusalem, unlike uh, the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which predominate in Galilee. I mean, both have accounts uh, like John. You think of uh, the first miracle at a wedding in Cana in Galilee. There were a few other um, parts or moments in John's Gospel where the uh, activity was centered around where Jesus grew up. Certainly, we have the Samaritan woman in John's Gospel as well, Samaria. But uh, predominantly, we see Jesus' activity around Jerusalem. And tonight is no different in chapter 11. Uh, We'll see that in just a moment. The seven signs, again, water into wine, or miracles, an old woman's son being healed, the Sabbath healing of paralytic in Jerusalem, the feeding of the 5,000. Remember that the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that's found in all four Gospels. Very significant. Jesus walking on the water, healing a man born blind, and then raising Lazarus from the dead. Now just as an aside, what do these seven signs also point to? Not only do they point to who Jesus is as the Son of God, but they also demonstrate His power. Power over nature. So water and wine means that Jesus is exerting His power over the law of physics. Uh, Walking on water, same thing, defying the laws of gravity by His supernatural power. Uh, feeding the 5,000 at Bethsaida. Also, he's multiplying. He's taking a small amount and he's actually multiplying, making food. So these signs, three of the uh, seven, demonstrate his power over nature. And then, of course, his power over disease. Him uh, healing the son, uh, the nobleman's son, the paralytic, I should say disease or disability, uh, the man born blind. And then, of course, his uh, power over death, raising Lazarus from the dead. The uh, high point miracle in John's Gospel, the climax, if you will, the greatest miracle Jesus does among the people outside of obviously him rising from the dead himself would be the rising or the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And so really the first 11 chapters, really 12 chapters, of John deal with Jesus' ministry and the signs that he performed. And then we go to the second half, which begins right at the Last Supper, the night before he dies, and then continues. So it's amazing 
the rest of John's Gospel from 13 through 21 deals with the last week of Jesus' ministry and the subsequent resurrection and then his time on earth before he ascends into heaven. The seven I am statements, I'm the light of the world, I'm the bread of heaven, I'm the gate, the door, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the resurrection and life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the true mind. Never hurts to go over this. You've seen this several times. It's great if you memorize it, if you just know it. Seven signs, seven I am statements. All pointing to who Jesus is. Oops, we get ahead of ourselves. All right. Okay, so if you would, please open up your Bibles to John chapter 11. Hopefully everyone got a copy of the notes. These are just to kind of supplement, kind of go over, highlight some of the key points. Uh, we do have copies of previous studies. They should be in the, the rack there as you go in. If not, I've got to dig out uh, previous studies. I'll try to have uh, copies of the previous studies available for everyone next week. We'll see if we can go back to... Uh, the first study, they kind of add up quickly. So verse 1, we read, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. So Bethany is a village actually less than two miles outside of Jerusalem. You can see that village today if you go there. That day you can see Lazarus's tomb. And Martha and Mary and Lazarus, they were a family and a family uh, of importance and a family that Jesus spent quite a, long, a lot of time with. He was personal friends with this family. We all know the story of Mary and Martha from Luke chapter 10. Remember, Mary was the one who focused and sat at Jesus' feet where Martha was always doing stuff. It was the uh, Mary who uh, anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Now, what John is doing is he's already introducing an event that would take place subsequently uh, later in John's Gospel. He's already referencing it, that this is the same Mary. But it also highlights the fact that this account of Mary pouring that oil over Jesus' feet, uh, that uh, perfumed uh, scented oil, that that was a significant event and account in the early church. So it was widely known. So, anyway, verse 3. So the sisters sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. This shows us a couple things. First of all, it shows us the special relationship Jesus had with Lazarus, as well as Martha and Mary. It also shows us that Lazarus' sickness is very serious. Otherwise, they would, not, they would not have sent word to Jesus, who's about 20 miles away in Perea. And the reason why we know it's serious is because at that point, remember from, last week, or from two weeks ago, in chapter 10, remember that Jesus went back north to Perea to get away from Jerusalem because he was under threat there to be arrested. So the very fact that Martha and Mary are kind of calling on Jesus to come back, even though they know it's dangerous, tells us that their brother is in serious shape. He's not doing well. Verse 4, but when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, 
so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, he didn't say this to Martha and Mary because we don't have instant, we, didn't, we don't have phones, you know, or they didn't have phones, I should say, instant communication. But he was saying to his disciples around him, Jesus was setting the stage for what he would do. But he wasn't just saying this for the sake of the disciples around him. He was saying this for all of us, for all generations. He was highlighting the truth that hardship, that crisis situations, that bad circumstances can always be an opportunity for God to show forth His power, for God to be glorified. And so this experience that Lazarus is going through will actually, even though it's a bad thing, will actually result in much good. It also highlights that any bad thing can be turned into good if it is seen within the purposes of God and if it is dedicated and or dedicated to the purposes of God. Now, I can give some examples, but I don't want to take the time, but I just want you to think about for a moment in your own life or the lives of others of examples where something is really tough Something is initially bad, it's not a good thing, but yet when we look back, we say, you know what, it might have been bad, it might have been tough, but I wouldn't have traded it for the world because of what I learned and what resulted. And so there's a spiritual principle, as there always is with every verse of Scripture, being set forth here. And specifically in the context, it's actually so that Jesus is able to show who He truly is and to confirm the faith of Martha and Mary and Lazarus and his disciples. Now we read, verse 5, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So that's just kind of a confirmation. You know, it already was implied. Martha already said, you love Lazarus. But now John is saying, yes, Jesus did love these three. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Jesus didn't move. Now it takes about a day, day's journey to get word to Jesus. So when Jesus got the message, it was about a day, not quite a day later, after they first initiated. Because like I said, it was about 20 miles away. And don't forget, they don't have cars. You know, you might get a donkey or I don't know about how. Yeah, I mean, they probably didn't have a horse, so have to walk 20 miles or maybe do a ride. But any, a donkey, right? To make things a little quicker. But then he waits two days. And then he goes. When he goes, it's going to take him a day, so it's going to be four days. And that's why we read later that Lazarus was in the tomb. Four days. It's really hard to wait, isn't it? It's hard to wait for whether or not you have a terminal illness. Get that message, right? Get that diagnosis. It's hard to wait for answers. And yet, throughout the Scriptures, we're told to wait on the Lord. It doesn't mean we don't do anything. It just means that we have to be patient and that the answer isn't always forthcoming right away. So Jesus waits... Because he has a greater purpose in mind. And then we read, 
Verse 7, then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, now before we look at what he says to them, this is kind of a, an interesting statement of Jesus. It parallels what he said in chapter 9. If you look back in chapter 9, you'll read that Jesus uses this analogy of day and night. See that in verse 4. Jesus says, We must work the works of Him who sent Me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So the implication here is Jesus is saying that even though the disciples are saying, don't go, we really shouldn't go because it's going to be dangerous. You might be arrested. They might stone you, Lord. You're not popular there among certain groups and certainly the authorities. Jesus is saying we must do the work of the day now. So what is he saying? He says we must, in a sense, he's saying we must do the work of God now. When we can. It highlights the fact that Jesus had a mission to accomplish. So rather than sitting back because of fear, we need to move forward knowing that if God is calling us to be something, to do something, then we must do it and not be afraid and to move while we can. There is a, someone has said it's not really original, but it is true. For the Christian, we must do all that we can while we can. I think I might have put when we can, but it's really while we can. Because the fact of the matter is, you don't know how many days left you have that you're going to be healthy and strong. Don't know how many days you have with the people who are around you. We must do what we can when we can. While we can. And so then, Jesus says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. He's waited two days. Lazarus is dead. But Jesus uses the imagery of sleep. Why is that? Now, I have the two words there in your notes. There are two different words for sleep in the Greek. What well, might I look there in your notes? The first is koimayo, koimayo, which basically means sleep, but it refers to death. And so why would the ancients refer to death 
as sleep because the idea is that the body is as if it's sleeping. There's no movement. There's no life in it. But that lack of life doesn't mean the same for the spirit of the soul. The body's asleep, not the spirit or the soul. On the outward, it looks like there's no life. Just like when we go to sleep, our body, there is no life, right? But yet our brain is still working. We have those dreams. Our body is still alive. In the same way, when we die physically, our spirit is still alive. Our soul is still alive. Hence the imagery of sleep. Now, what developed in the church was this disagreement or two views, and that was the one view that said that actually, no, when we die, our spirit, soul, and body are asleep. And this is called soul sleep. It's a minority view among Christians, but some do hold to it. And so they believe that when one dies, they are not conscious at all. And their consciousness, their spirit and soul, will not be revived until their body is revived and transformed and resurrected at the coming of Jesus. And there are a number of scriptures that would suggest that. And yet, at the same time, we have scriptures that suggest that there is consciousness that our soul and spirit are still alive when we, our body is dead. And I gave you two examples. One that is very clear would be the one that we find when Jesus is on the cross between two thieves. And one says, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, today I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. Now the proponents of soul sleep would say, well, really the translation should be, Jesus was saying, I say to you today, or today I say to you, you shall be with me in paradise. So that the today is modifying that I say to you, but you've heard me say this before when I've addressed it in sermons, that that is kind of absurd to add today to I say to you. So it's kind of like I go, today I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. Well, why do I have to say today I say to you? If I, if I just say I say to you, it's already understood that it's today I'm saying it to you. Moreover, there aren't any other examples in the Scriptures of someone saying today I say to you in order to emphasize that they're saying something to you today. Even though you could, I mean, I guess there is that expression, today I say to you. Yeah, I guess you could do that, but it just doesn't really make sense. Of course, then they'll say that, well, how could the thief be with Christ in paradise if Christ is dead in the tomb? Right? That makes sense. But the problem with that is that Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus said that I and the Father are one. Jesus said the Holy Spirit, another comforter, which literally means one corresponding to himself, will be with you forever. So that if I am with the Spirit, I'm with Jesus. If I'm with the Father, I'm with Jesus. It's the same, right? One and the same, three in one. And then, of course, when we have 
Paul speaking about in Philippians chapter 1 that to live is Christ, to die is gain. And he talks about how it would be better to be depart and be with Christ is far better. And he even talks about that in 2 Corinthians 5 where Paul talks about how we are living in a tent and when this earthly tent is destroyed, we have a home in heaven. And so, whether we're away from the Lord and at home in the body or away from the body and at home with the Lord, we make it our aim to please Him. And so, I would say that soul sleep is erroneous. On top of that, you have so many experiences of people when they die of going to the light and actually going to heaven or, or paradise, maybe not technically heaven, or having an out-of-body experience or of being there in the presence of God in the kingdom. And then people will say, well, then what happens though to the physical body? How can that be? And I would say that God could certainly give us an intermediary body. God has that potential. And when we think of God being multidimensional, He can do a whole sorts of, all sorts of things. But know this, that the Bible and Jesus Himself demonstrated that the same bodies we inhabit, the same bodies that our spirit and our soul are linked up with and united to, that even though they decay, these same bodies will be transformed. And so they, we will be able to recognize one another in glory. Our bodies will be much better physically and uh, everything. There'll be a familiarity, but yet they'll be different. But we're not turning into some different life form. Now having said all that, I want you to think about for a moment the whole process of sleep. For whatever reason, the last couple of weeks I've been thinking about that more when I go to bed because it's kind of weird. You don't know when you fall asleep, right? You just sit there and all of a sudden you're out. You have no recollection of time, nothing. And then all of a sudden you're awake. And it's like, how in the heck that happens every night? Right? Every morning. I know some of us have a hard time going to sleep. That can be very frustrating. But man, if you're able to go to sleep, you know, it's kind of like you try, and you can't really force it either unless you're really exhausted. You almost just have to relax. Just kind of let your body slow down. And then all of a sudden you're out, and then you have no, and then boom, you're, you're up. So I share all that because even, let's say, the spirit and the soul end two, I don't believe that because then you're no longer really technically in existence. But let's say, even if the spirit and soul, you went into soul sleep and you died, you could be dead for three million years. <laughs> Once you get up, it's going to be like you were never... You see my point? There's no time. Just once you're up, boom! So really, in the total scheme of things, it doesn't really matter, really. Does it? 15 now. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe but let us go to Him. You see, the whole purpose of Jesus is not just revealing who He is, but so that we might believe. Come to faith. 
Therefore Thomas, who was called Didymus, which means twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. So Thomas, even though he doubted the Lord afterwards, it was more out of grief, not because he was questioning things, but I think he was just couldn't believe it, that God was really alive and, and Jesus was alive, and that's why he said, I need to see the scars. But you can see that he was fiercely loyal. He was ready to go. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. That's why we know that Martha and Mary and Lazarus were of a prominent family because so many people came to comfort them. Verse 20, Martha therefore when she heard that Jesus was coming went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. It kind of almost uh, follows through with the story we know of Martha and Mary. You know, Mary being more passive, more, you know, contemplative and Martha being more active and kind of taking the initiative. Verse 21, Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So she expresses her disappointment. Nothing wrong with expressing our disappointment to God. Nothing wrong with being honest to God. But notice she doesn't just stop there. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. So she still was hopeful. She was still a person of faith. One of the most dangerous things, it's a killer, is when people let their despondency and let their disappointment with God and their anger with God keep them there, and then they go down the cynical road or the, the it's a dead end, man. You're not going to get out of it. You're only to dig yourself a bigger pit. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So what Martha was doing was affirming the Jewish understanding, the doctrine which Sandra just quoted from Daniel 12, which the Pharisees believed that the dead rise again. Now the Sadducees did not believe that. I don't know if you know that or not. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. But the Pharisees did. But notice what Jesus does. He totally transforms the whole belief of the resurrection. He says this, and it's so in keeping with everything that he does and has said to this point and will say afterwards. Verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now there's three things that are going on here. First, Jesus is person, um, personalizing. He's personifying the resurrection. That it is not merely a belief in some dogmatic statement. It's wrapped up in His person. It's a following. It's a trusting in Him. And it's all wrapped up in Him. And because of that, if one puts their faith in Christ, then what does He say? We'll live even if He dies. So we're all going to die physically. Well, Jesus is saying we're going to have life despite that. And then He says everyone who lives and believes, that's like an ongoing living, but it's an ongoing believing. And it's, remember, in John's Gospel, it's not an intellectual belief. It's a belief that acts. It's that trust. So it's an ongoing trusting in the Lord. will never die. So you will have eternal life. So you will not only be raised from the dead, you're going to keep living, but 
as you follow Jesus and as you continue in your relationship with Him, you have eternal life. And then thirdly, it involves a choice. We must individually receive it. He says to Martha, do you believe this? And then she says to him this wonderful declaration of faith, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even He who comes into the world. So the beautiful thing about this, when she says, I have believed, it means that she has made a decision and she is keeping on believing. It's the strongest. It's in the perfect tense. It's hard to translate in the English. And so Martha is saying, yes, Lord, I know you're the Son of God. You're the Christ. And I know that the only reason why I'm going to have life is because of you. Because of my relationship with you. Now, the beautiful thing about this is this is the same type of question and answer that we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but it's a different context. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus, outside of Caesarea Philippi, asks His disciples, who do men say that I am? And then He says, but who do you say that I am? And then Peter responds, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But what's neat about John is that it isn't the disciples, the apostles that are responding. It isn't men that are responding, but it's a woman who's responding, who's making the same declaration. And then just as in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's that climax who do you say? Who do people say that I am? But who do you say that I am? And then remember, Jesus says after Peter makes that, he says, "Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail." Not so much Peter, but the confession of who Jesus is. So too, Martha is doing the same thing. But in this case, it isn't that the gates of hell will not prevail and the church will be built. But in this case, it is that you will have resurrection and eternal life. When she had said this. She went away and called Mary her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when, that is, Mary heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. That's typical Mary. She wants to see her Lord. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet. Notice that there's three times we have Mary, she's always falling at the feet of Jesus. Or she, I shouldn't say not falling. She sat at the feet of, feet of Jesus to listen to Him. She falls at the feet of Jesus right now, and then she pours the perfume falling at the feet of Jesus. She's always at the feet of Jesus. And that's what we're to be too, spiritually. Always at the feet of Jesus. Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. She said the same thing her sister had said. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. That deeply moved means literally snorting like a horse. It's like, ah, and it's, it connotes anger. But anger of great, just disgust. Jesus is angry at what death does to relationships, what death does to life. But he's not just angry where it says he's very troubled. It means he was agitated, disturbed in his spirit. And then he weeps. He's moved to outward emotion. And this is one of the greatest examples of Jesus' compassion and, and love that he wept. Nowhere in the ancient world do you have good gods crying and weeping. And yet here we have the God of the universe weeping with Mary. Weeping as he sees the scourge 
and the evil of death in human experience. And let's face it, death is a real drag, isn't it? I mean, isn't that a bummer? That you have a nice little pet dog or cat? I'm just saying. Any of us who have pets, we have to go through that. We dread the day. Or we dread the day we have to bury our parents. And we certainly don't even like to contemplate if we ever have to lose one of our kids. It's horrible. We would have the same in our soul when those things happen. And Jesus was experiencing that. And then we have verse 35, the shortest verse in the Scriptures, I believe. There's probably one, one, one other that might be just as short. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them were saying, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? You always have these sticks in the mud. These party poopers. Pathetic. But it, it shows you because he healed the man born blind several months earlier. And they still remember that miracle. And they want to see more. Can't you do more? Well, Jesus says that shows you can't. Verse 38, so Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. That was a cave and a stone was lying against it. I have an example of what it would have looked like right there. You go to uh, Jerusalem, Israel, you'll find examples of this. You can go to, like I said, Lazarus' tomb. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. So Martha had to demonstrate her faith further. Was she going to trust the Lord? She's like, Lord, this doesn't make any sense. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So you see, belief is an ongoing thing. Demonstrating in believing action. So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. So Jesus it doesn't have to do this, but he's praying out loud. He's thanking the Father for something that's already going to be done, that's already predestined, foreordained. It's to show the glory of God. It's to show that Jesus has a special relationship with the Father, and it shows how special Jesus is as the Son of God. And then, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth, or Lazarus, come out. And you think about that for a moment. What kind of authority and power is that, that someone can command a dead man who is decaying, who stinks, who's bound to come back and come out of the tomb. And notice though that Jesus uses Lazarus' name. It's always personal. Jesus knows us each by name. He calls us each by name. Remember, He's the Good Shepherd. And it's the same thing with death. And the only reason why we can have that resurrection is because of His relationship with us. Not so much our relationship with Him but his relationship with us. So Lazarus, come out! And we read what happens. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot and with wrappings around and his face around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now see, there is an uh, important spiritual principle that God can do the healing and God can do the raising and God can do the transforming. But we are His hands and His feet. And we need to be there for the new Christian. And we need to be there for the old Christian. We need to be there for 
one another. Because even though Lazarus was alive, he still had to be unbound. He couldn't do it himself. He was locked in. He needed the help of his brothers and sisters in the Lord. So there's a principle there for all of us. And then it says in verse 45 and 46, nothing has changed. 2,000 years later, nothing has changed. Same thing. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. They trusted in him. Uh, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. So, brothers and sisters, this incredible chapter, and then we can, we'll pick up next week, we can talk about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, how even though they hated each other, they worked to conspire to kill Jesus because Jesus was a threat to them. I can just sum it up right now, right? They said, if this continues, the whole world will go after him, and the Romans will take our power. Oh, boo-hoo. And so we got to kill him now. And the fact of the matter is that even though Caiaphas had prophesied that a man would die for the people, he was basically being facetious. And John gives the interpretation that the death of Jesus wasn't just really for the benefit of the nation, but it was for all people. And so that which they meant for evil, that which Satan meant for evil, actually became the good for the Jewish people and for the entire world, for you and me. And that is the miracle of the resurrection. But lest we forget the miracle in John chapter 11 the raising of Lazarus from the dead albeit how great it is that's not the that's just the sign the greatest miracle is a change of heart the greatest miracle is a changed life the greatest miracle is when one is born again that's where it's at and the only way we can be born again is by putting our faith in Jesus Christ and trusting him and that's why we have resurrection and that's why we have life. Let us pray as we prepare our hearts and minds for Holy Communion. Heavenly Father, we thank You and praise You for Your grace that we get a lot of things that we don't deserve just by virtue of who You are, by Your love and Your compassion. We thank You how Jesus so incredibly demonstrated that love and compassion time and time again, and especially when it came to Martha and Mary and, and raising Lazarus from the dead. We thank you that even 2,000 years later we're talking about that incredible miracle. But Lord, let us not forget that the incredible miracle is that you love us so much that you want to have a personal relationship with us so that we cannot, we don't have to fear our past, we don't have to fear our future, but we can rest and trust in you. Help us to do that. Inspire us, Lord. Convict us where we need to be convicted. And fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we can truly appreciate not only who you are and what you've done in our lives, but so that we can make a difference in the lives of others as we point people to Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. We thank you and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to the Transforming Lives Together podcast, a ministry of St. Bartholomew's Anglican Church in Tonawanda, New York. For more information about the church, including a list of our service times, please visit our website at www.stbartston.org. Again, that's www.stbartston.org. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a five-star rating or a positive review. Both will help in reaching more people with this podcast. If you're on Facebook, head over to facebook.com slash Transforming Lives Together podcast and give us a like. And if you're an Amazon Alexa user, say, Hey Alexa. 
play the Transforming Lives Together podcast to hear the latest episodes. We hope you will tune in next time as we continue with Life's Meaning and Purpose, an in-depth study of the Gospel of John. Until then, we leave you with these verses from Paul's letter to the Romans. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. God bless.